I'm already getting the impression that this is a modest man with very little to be modest about. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have, I think, an incredible story. I really enjoyed researching this guy. He's absolutely fantastic. And strong name, a return to the strong names. Mm. I feel I should hand it over for a native speaker to, to introduce this man. Yes, he is a Scotsman, as his name will give away. And we are going to be looking at Lieutenant Ian Lachlan Mackie McGough. What a strong name. It's great, isn't it's it? A, it's a brilliant name. This man was legendary. I mean, this is a Navy escape. And more so, he's a submariner. Mm. And submariner escapes, we don't get very many. No, we don't. We we have covered two, actually. You have, in Series uh, 1. In Series it? 1, Episode 10, when we covered... Engine room artificers. That's right. Hammond and Lister. That's right. And of course, it's very rare because not only is it very difficult to escape from a submarine, by the very nature of where submarines tend to become casualties, it's very remote and therefore not very near land. And therefore, the chances of being taken on as a survivor are next to nil. I'd love to know what the statistics are, actually. But in this particular case, we have a fabulous account, effectively from the captain of this submarine. But I had a look into him, and his career is just incredible. So he was born in Helensburgh uh, on the 26th of March, 1914. And he was said he's a burly figure. So submarines are generally small, mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is a well-built man. He went to Pangbourne Nautical College, and then he joined the Navy straight from Nautical College in 1931. So we don't have any other occupations pre-military service, but he went in as a special entry cadet. He first served as a midshipman on the HMS Royal Oak. Now, whilst I'm not a naval person, I have heard of the Royal Oak, but it was, I believe, the first major battleship to be sunk in the Second World War when it was parked in Scarpa Flow. And you may recall, or some of our listeners might recall, that I think it was only a few years ago there was a big hoo-ha in the press because it was leaking an awful lot of fuel and oil up in Scarpa Flow and Mm. they did decide that even though it's a war grave they would actually tap it to pull out all the oil and fuel and everything else. So he served on that. He then went on to Devonshire and then he volunteered to actually go onto submarines and he went down to HMS Dolphin which is Gosport area. It's where the National Submarine Museum is next to. He went there in 1936. He then passed on to submarines and he served on HMS Clyde in Malta as a navigator and third hand he stayed out there for quite a while actually because he ended up marrying and he had two daughters and two sons out there so i think a lot of his service actually happened in the mediterranean in that area and he was out there when the second world war broke out he returned to the uk in january 1940 and he was put on a really interesting mission i wondered if it was one that we had actually covered it's not when i looked it in but then i found it was fascinating so one of his first duties in the war was actually to drop a secret agent off in guernsey And it was successful, despite it starting off as an absolute disaster, because he took this old, called an H-class submarine, had to look it up, it's basically a really clunky First World War, tiny little thing, and they took a native Guernseyman, Hubert Nicol, back there to try and gain some intelligence about what fortifications the Germans had done on Guernsey. But the way to get him in was to create this little kayak, but it's so small in the submarine, they couldn't actually put the kayak in it, so they had to build it. And it turns out that what they did is they got ready to surface, built the kayak, and then surfaced and couldn't get it out of the hatch. So they then had to sink again, undo all the kayak, and then surface again and build it outside of the submarine for him to paddle in. But then they picked him up three days later. 
they were never spotted. But it was a bit of a disaster from that aspect. Nicole goes on to have this absolutely incredible career, which is almost worthy of covering. He's not quite an escaper, but absolutely fascinating thing if anyone wants to look up Hubert Nicole. But following that particular trip, McGough moves on to HMS Triumph in July 1940, and he was selected for this commanding officer's course, which was called the Perisher, as it still is today, apparently. And it's called that due to its high failure rate. And a failure on the Perisher is an end to your submarine career. Now, he passed this and was sent back to Malta to become a spare commanding officer to cover for illness or injury as part of the 10th submarine flotilla. He actually took command of a submarine but was not confident in his own abilities. So unusually, and I couldn't find another case for this, he elected to return to the UK to take the perisher for a second time. Okay, that's... Unheard of. It's unheard of in Navy circles. I couldn't find another case of somebody taking a course that could end your career twice because they just, having passed it the first time, you weren't confident in your own abilities to carry out the work. But he did pass it a second time. That's very impressive. It's very impressive. And possibly because of that, he was then given the command of a brand new submarine straight out of being launched. And that was HMS Splendid, which he was to take to Gibraltar to take part in Operation Torch. Now, this is very relevant as we move towards the escape. Now, Operation Torch, I think we've covered it before. It was the landings to defeat the Axis forces in North Africa. Between November 1942 and May 1943, HMS Splendid actually sank more tonnage on its six patrols than any other submarine, under the command of a man who had previously doubted his own ability to command a submarine. I won't go through all of the different ones because there was lots of Italian merchant carriers and everything else that he did. So based out of Gibraltar and out of Malta, and had a very successful time under his command. So this takes us on to his capture, effectively. Now, he does not detail it in any great detail, and he also plays down some major facts that came out as part of this. In his words, he said, I was captured off the coast of Capri on the 21st of April 1943 after my ship, HM Submarine Splendid, had been sunk by depth charges of a German destroyer. Now, there's a lot of information missing out of this. Now, what they've done is they've gone to patrol off the coast of Naples and it was an absolutely calm conditions night and unfortunately their periscope was spotted by the German ship Hermes. The destroyer, that German ship, made three attack runs dropping 41 depth charges on the submarine. Now, McGough dived the submarine to 500 feet, which is quite a significant depth for, mm. for a submarine. But the last 11 depth charges that were dropped started leaks inside the submarine. So they surfaced, at which point the destroyer's guns started shelling the ship, which killed 18 people and wounded McGough in the eye with a splinter of metal, blinding him. He then ordered for the remaining sailors to scuttle the submarine, and of the complement of crew, only five officers and 25 ratings survived to be imprisoned by the Germans. So as you see, his escape report actually doesn't give very much detail about his capture itself. And coupled with someone who doubted his abilities to the extent that he did the Punisher again, I'm already getting the impression that this is a modest man with very little to be modest about. Correct, yes. So having been captured off the coast of Capri, which is a small island in the Bay of Naples, mm -hmm. I have been there. It is lovely. I have been there too. <laughs> mm, it's very nice. As you say, the rate of capture amongst seafarers, those serving in both the Royal and Merchant Navies, is fairly low Yeah. by virtue of location of their operations. So if, if their ship is 
bomb destroyed, they've then got water to contend with. Correct. Yeah, drowning, um, fire, all the other stuff yeah, that comes with sinking ships. Yes. Exactly. So the, the rate of capture and therefore prisoners of war is significantly lower and we do see fewer escapes as a result from seamen. Nonetheless, as you said, five officers and 25 ratings have been picked up by the German destroyer and by virtue of being in the Bay of Naples, they were, of course, returned to Naples itself. Yes. So he states that we landed at Naples on the 21st of April and were sent straight to the German section of Campo 66, which is Capua Transit Camp, which is about 25 kilometres north of Naples. It's not, not too far out and they've gone directly there. Now, they weren't separated into officers and ratings immediately until they'd actually been in the camp for about 10 days and were about to be interrogated. And as one of the officers, he, he says that during this time I impressed upon all ranks that they must disclose only name, rank, and in the case of the men, number. Now, as one of the senior officers, he was the first to be interrogated. And he says that the interrogator was a man in civilian clothes who spoke perfect English and who was alleged to be a German colonel. With him was an Italian naval officer also in civilian clothes. After I'd given my name and rank, the German asked if I was Royal Navy or the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. I said that that was not within his terms of reference, that I would not reply and that he would find the information on the Navy list. The German then got very angry. He then asked if I was married and said I would not answer any more questions after which he did not ask any more. So having just instructed all his men to only answer with name, rank and number, he is then refusing to provide any information over and above that. So he's at least sticking to his word and his orders. He also says that throughout this interrogation, the Italian officer said nothing, which in fairness is probably actually more of a reflection of the seniority of the Germans over the Italians by this stage of the war. In Capua, he was visited by the senior British NCO, who was a regimental sergeant major in the Buffs. He managed to get hold of copies of small-scale maps, one of the whole of Italy showing the railways and the other of the Swiss frontier, and he made copies of these two maps, which, given the route that he was to take, would prove to be fairly crucial. Mm -hmm. Now, while his description of his capture doesn't make any mention of his injury, he does say that I'd been hit in the eye by a shell splinter but did not declare this injury as I expected we would remain the prisoners of the Germans to be sent to Germany and I hope to escape on the journey. So he's basically lost his sight. But in order to pursue an escape, he's not sought medical help. Yeah. Mad. Yeah. Legendary. Yeah. But mad. Mm-hmm. However, almost immediately after interrogation, he was handed over to the Italians, so he then owned up to his eye injury and was sent to the military hospital at Caserta. So, by virtue of being captured in Italy, being handed over to the Italians means that he will not have an opportunity to make an escape on a journey, which is why, when he thought there was still an opportunity to end up in Germany, he refused to declare his medical issue, but as soon as he knew that there would not be an opportunity to escape, he then owned up to it so that he could receive medical attention. So it doesn't immediately come across in his report, but he was actually to make three escape attempts. Mm -hmm. He kind of skirts over them a little bit as if the first two were just sort of minor trivialities in his time as a prisoner of war rather than actual full-blown escape attempts. But having read through it, there was definitely concerted efforts to escape prior to his final successful escape. So, having been sent to the hospital at Caserta, he was engaged on a tunnel scheme while in hospital. I mean, this guy's great. He is, isn't he? <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. However, he was in a party which was moved before the tunnel was completed. And on the 24th of June, so not that long after he was captured, maybe a couple of months after he was captured, all the British officers who were in the hospital were put on a hospital train. The following day on the 25th of June with Captain Roworth of the Royal Engineers, he jumped from the train at a village near Frascati. Now, there was a guard with them in the compartment, but having fallen asleep, they managed to get through the window and then climb onto the buffers and waited till the train slowed down. 
It's a very throwaway comment. Yeah. Dealing with that of climbing out of the train window and then making your way around to stand on the buffers as the train's moving and then wait for an opportunity when it's so down. That's a big effort, particularly as he's got use of one eye. Yes. In fact, the reason he is in a hostile train is because he has lost sight in one eye. Yeah. I like this guy. He's Brit. I told you, I loved researching this man. I thought he was fantastic. So having jumped from a moving train, having lost the sight in one eye, I think I feel that is worth reiterating. Yes. They moved northeast with their intention being to reach the Adriatic coast, get a boat and make for Yugoslavia to join the partisans. I love his ambition here. So after the first night of walking, they managed to reach an aerodrome on the side of which they lay up for the next day. So they're not even bothering to hide themselves. They've walked to a major military site. And then, and then slept outside the wire. Slept outside the wire. All while on the run from the Germans and Italians who presumably are aware that they've now lost two prisoners of war. After three more nights of walking across country, they'd pass through Tivoli and Vicavaro, where they laid up in a ruined barn. And while there, they find an Italian peasant who was very friendly and brought them some fruit. Now, this is actually three months prior to the armistice. Mm-hmm. So at this stage, the Italians are still on the Axis side. Yeah. And yet... This Italian peasant is providing two escape prisoners of war with food. It's quite a bold move by the peasant, in fairness. You know, very brave in fascist Italy to assist prisoners of war. It is. So having got some food, in the afternoon they decided it would be safer to move on and walk to the woods north of the main road, where they passed the time of day with an old vagabond. Two or three hours later, four carabinieri turned up and arrested them all. While they were at the police station, the vagabond then appeared trying to claim the reward. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I admire this vagabond too. Yes. <laughs> and I think what almost makes this even more impressive is he says, On this attempt to escape, we were in British army battle dress with imitation German caps which were good enough to pass in the dark. We had not intended to be seen in the daytime. So they have barely passable disguise and yet they're laying up in ruined barns and getting assistance from Italian peasants and sleeping next to airdrops. They're not really hiding themselves given that they're definitely not making a lot of effort to assimilate. Indeed. I think it's brilliant. So having been recaptured, they were then taken to an interrogation camp in Rome. They were taken there by car, and the interrogation camp was in a cavalry barracks. Arguably, this gets even better, because he says, In Rome, the car stopped for about an hour in a square, and I got out in the blackout and started to run, hoping to hide in an air raid shelter, and later make for the Vatican City. Unfortunately, I fell and was recaptured. So, he's making yet another impromptu escape, while under lock and key in the middle of Rome, hoping to make his way to the Vatican City. Now, bear in mind, this is before the armistice. Mm. So the Rome escape line that Sam Derry was involved in... Hadn't been set up, Hadn't been set up yet, because he didn't get out until after the armistice. So he didn't actually reach Rome until later in 1943. Yeah. So although there wasn't really an official Rome escape line as we came to know it... He still had the smarts and the nice to think, I'm going to make for a neutral country, mm. which is slap bang in the middle of the city that I happen to find myself in. He wasn't making for Rome. Magog hasn't been trying to get to Rome. He's been no. taken to Rome. So he's making an impromptu escape based upon the opportunities that have happened to have presented to himself by virtue of being captured in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's brilliant. It is. So having been recaptured a second time <laughs> in the space of 24 hours... He was then taken to this interrogation camp in the cavalry barracks. Now, in the camp, Lieutenant Stevens of the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve warned me of the presence of a stooge, and he was then visited by a man in uniform who called himself Captain Richards and said that he was the permanent SBO at the camp. 
He said he had arranged to share a room with me and had special facilities for getting drink if I wanted any. I shared a room with him but did not see much of him except at mealtimes. Now, typically SBOs had their own room, so it is a bit odd for him to share a room with someone claiming to be the SBO, but then if you're a stooge, why would you claim to be the SBO? Yeah, that's true. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. It seems it's possible that Captain Richards was a stooge, but equally it's possible he wasn't and was just maybe an oddball or... Or really was the SBO and they just didn't have space for him. I don't know, it's not very clear. Nonetheless, he was interrogated by an Italian lieutenant who was in charge of the camp, who asked McGough why he tried to escape and he told him that I wanted to get back to the UK to get proper treatment for my eye. Which is fair, but unlikely. And so he was in this interrogation camp for 10 days, leaving on the 10th of July. Now, after that, he was sent to Campo 5, which is at Gavi. Now, we have actually come across Gavi a couple of times. With Alistair Cram and also Buck Pam. And so from Rome, he was sent to Gavi, as as I say, and through the efforts of the SBO, who was a Brigadier Clayton of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, and the medical officer was Captain Gray, also of the New Zealand Army Medical Corps, McGough was included in the repatriation party on the grounds that he'd lost sight of one eye and was in danger of losing the sight of the other. So he left the camp on the 31st of August for repatriation and was in Piacenza till the 7th of September when he was put on a hospital train which was going to Bergamo. Now Bergamo's quite far north in Italy, it's sort of due east of Milan, so south of the Alps. Yeah. So they actually remained on the train at Bergamo for two days and it was while on this medical train that they heard the news of the armistice on the 8th of September. So on the 9th of September, they were all taken from the train to a hospital at Bergamo in which there were already many British prisoners of war. And on the 10th of September, he got permission from the SBO of the train to escape. He says there were no Germans in the hospital, although there were some in the town of Bergamo itself, but they did not arrive in the hospital till half an hour after I had left. So this is where his escape and escape situation differs a lot from others who have escaped in Italy. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, so the armistice was agreed while he was actually on a hospital train heading north to be repatriated. And this is in stark contrast to the standfast order that we've seen in most camps that took place during the armistice. So, which created a lot of chaos, a lot of confusion. Some upset. People, ups, yeah, upset. <laughs> Some of them stayed in the camps as ordered. Others thought, saw this, I'm off to try and reach the front line, which came with a number of different issues. Mm. I'm not saying one is right or the other is wrong, but the standfast order was both controversial and difficult to impose and created a lot of problems on all fronts. By contrast, he is very far north in Italy at this point and on a hospital train being repatriated. So he finds himself in quite an odd situation because, of course, he's been repatriated by the Italians, but the Italians have just changed sides and the Germans are about to occupy the area that he is in because the Germans moved south from Germany. Mm. They're already fairly present in Italy, but they're moving south from Germany to occupy following the armistice. So he is in the first part of Italy that the Germans are going to reach. It makes sense to do a runner then, doesn't it? It does a little bit. Even though he's on a repatriation party, it does make sense for him to make an escape. I expect the Germans would probably not have upheld the repatriation request upon reaching the train. I suspect not also. Yes. And I get the impression that McGough is playing the odds a little bit here. Yes. And come to the same conclusion and thought, give this a go, I've already tried twice. He's clearly not afraid of making spirited attempts. Let's put it that (laughs) way. And so this is almost quite a unique escape circumstance, i.e. the circumstances he found himself in at the point at which he made an escape. We haven't seen anyone else who's had to make an escape due to the armistice while on a hospital train Mm. being repatriated. Mm. It's very interesting. It is. 
On the flip side, the big advantage of being so far north is you're actually fairly close to Switzerland. This is also true. Had he been in Capua or even Gavi, which was further north, but had he been in any of them, he'd still have a fair distance to cover. Instead, he finds himself in a hospital in Bergamo, which is not a million miles from the likes of Como, and from Como you then carrying on north into Switzerland, which is precisely what he was to go on to do. So on the 10th of September 1943, a couple of days after the armistice was agreed, he walked out of hospital at about 11 o'clock in the morning, wearing hospital clothes, which constituted a chocolate-coloured pair of pyjama trousers and a white shirt, and he'd also exchanged his army boots for a pair of suede shoes. Now, with the best will in the world, that's a pretty dreadful disguise. Yes, yes. I mean, particularly as Italians, I know they've change size at this point but they notice clothing they do yes yeah absolutely and, you know we've seen before where one escaper was recaptured because they noticed that he was wearing the wrong type of shoes that's right that were army boots rather than gucci loafers so as well as a pretty poor disguise he also had a hundred lira which had been given to him by a captain cook of rather fittingly the special boat section <laughs> oh excellent <laughs> for a name like that a shaving kit and a copy of a map of the Swiss frontier. Useful. Very. Both items useful yep. there. So he made for the hills north of Bergamo, where an Italian peasant gave him an old suit of clothes and a further 200 lira. So fairly quickly he's managed to both improve his disguise and financial situation, which given he's actually not covering that significant a distance, mm. puts him in suddenly quite a strong position to make and complete this escape. The wife of this peasant conducted him to the railway station at Torni and bought him a ticket for San Martino di Calvi, and from there he then walked to Olmo and stayed the night in a hotel. Now again, we've talked about having money to buy tickets, train tickets and stay in hotels, and just the difference that makes yeah. to being able to make a rapid and effective escape coupled with a shaving kit in order to assimilate this stark contrast to his first, and to a lesser extent his second escape attempt, is enormous, whereby he was attempting to escape through Italy in just his army uniform. The following day, on the 11th of September, he walked to Misoldo, and although his shoes were too small, he met a mountaineer who, after giving him some lunch, took him on his mule to the Paso di San Marco, where he stayed the night in a cantina. Now, in the cantina were six Italian soldiers on their way home. On the 12th of September, he accompanied these soldiers to Girola Alta, from where he got a lift in the lorry to Morbegno. So he's slowly but surely making his way north towards Switzerland. And it also kind of confirms, in a way, that he must have been fairly proficient in Italian. Yes. Now, obviously, he's served in Malta a lot, where mm. I think it's predominantly English and Maltese, but there must be a lot of uh, Italian must, language yeah. spoken there as well. So he must have picked up enough to make more than enough of a passing ability to hold conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And also, he's been in camps for a little while, so if he's even vaguely proficient in languages, he will have picked up at least a smattering of it. So having reached Morbegno, at the railway station I met a well-dressed man who wore a Union Jack. He spoke to me in English and said he had fought with the British in the last war, and he gave me a good lunch and bought with his own money a ticket for me to go to Tirano. So that was a lucky... It's nice. Yeah, absolutely. As he was leaving the station at Tirano, a carabinieri stopped him and asked for his papers, but as he had none, he, he was taken to see the carabinieri's captain at the headquarters. However, on explaining who he was and that he was making for Switzerland, the captain let him go. Now, as I say, this is just after the armistice. So chaos reigns. Yeah, chaos reigns, but also, had this happened a week earlier, he would have been rearrested. Hmm. It, in many ways, exemplifies just how febrile the situation in Italy was around mm. the armistice. Because we've talked a lot about it before, but this really exemplifies how 
active the front, for want of a better description, was and how that impacted upon these prisoners of war who either were wanting to escape or did escape around the time of the armistice because of the opportunity it presented. So, as I say, this really does kind of exemplify just how febrile it was at this time. Hmm. So the captain of the Carabinieri said that there were Germans on the frontier in the valley north of Tirano and advised him to take a track leading up to Monte Masuccio. So Magog took this path which led through Barufini and on that track there was a customs post which he avoided by going about 1500 feet up the mountainside which seems quite an extreme detour to Mm. me. But potentially necessary. You know, I'm, not, I'm not saying he made the wrong choice, just that it does seem quite a, an extreme detour to take just to avoid a customs post. So having gone up this mountainside, he found a path which led across the frontier into Switzerland at a part where there were neither patrols nor wire. And he followed the path into Switzerland where he gave himself up at a Swiss military post, having crossed the frontier about 2 o'clock in the morning on the 13th of September. After spending the day with a bank manager, which is just so stereotypically Swiss, <laughs> you know, the second he gets into Switzerland, he then meets up with a bank manager. I like it. It's on brand, doesn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> so the bank manager's wife was British, and he assisted them in getting to Samaden. On the following day, on the 14th of September, he then reported to the military attaché in Bern, where he made immediate arrangements for Magog to go to Geneva for treatment for his eye. And he was to enter a clinic on the 16th of September, remaining there until the 26th of September, so 10 days, after two successful operations being performed on on his eye. And eventually he left Switzerland on the 8th of March 1944. Now, that is where the escape report stops. But of course, as we've discussed before, simply getting to Switzerland does not get you home. Correct. And so, of course, when he says, I left Switzerland on the 8th of March 1944, what he actually means is he re-entered occupied Europe, specifically occupied France. So he left Switzerland six months after arriving, and it then took him a further two months to reach Gibraltar. Now, we know by virtue of the escape lines that were operating in occupied France at this time and the ones that connected up with Switzerland that he would have gone down what remained of what had been the Patolieri line. These things, again, were fairly febrile and moved around as the Gestapo infiltrated and arrested various members over the years. But the one that ran through Marseille, he almost certainly would have re-entered occupied France round about Geneva and connected up with that line on the other side of the frontier and made his way down to Marseille, then across the Pyrenees, probably on the Barcelona side, and then over to Madrid and down to Gibraltar. And as I said, it took him a full two months to get from Switzerland to Gibraltar. Having reached Gibraltar, he then sailed from Gibraltar on the 8th of March 1944, arriving in Portsmouth five days later on the 13th of March 1944, so less than a month before D-Day. He's just arrived in Portsmouth which of course was one of the major staging points for D-Day itself. So I imagine that was very busy as well. So he managed to get back to the UK eight months after escaping and 13 months after his initial capture. Amazing. His military service didn't stop there though. Okay. Although I do believe he never fully regained sight in the wounded eye, so he stayed effectively blind in one eye for the rest of his life. But that didn't stop him from continuing in the Navy, because he returned to duty, and then he attended the Naval Staff course in 1944, gained a promotion. So he became the staff officer for operations for the 4th Cruiser Squadron in the British Pacific, which was fine, but obviously with the surrender of Japan, he wasn't needed out there any further. He did help repatriate British prisoners of war, and he returned to the United Kingdom in 1946 and took command of another submarine. Promoted commander in 1947, he worked in operations in the Admiralty, 
So you can see he's now going down a senior route from here and ended up commanding another submarine squadron in Sydney from 1949. He gained promotion again and served as the Naval Liaison Officer to the RAF Coastal Command in 1955 and 56 and then commanded yet another submarine squadron from 1957 to 58 before he became the Director of Undersurface Warfare in the Admiralty for two years which then led to the command of HMS Lion and then eventual promotion into uh, being a Rear Admiral, which then gave him the role of President of the Royal Naval College in Greenwich. He then moved into the nuclear warfare area of the Navy because he became commander of HMS Valiant, which was the Royal Navy's second nuclear attack submarine, and then became a Vice Admiral in 1967, which gave him the position of Flag Officer Scotland and Northern Ireland. He gained a CB in 1966 and the KCB in 1969 before retiring in 1970. But yet still he was not going to stop from there because he then had a whole nother career in effectively historical study and authorship because he studied social sciences at the University of Edinburgh from 1970 and he got an MPhil for writing a thesis on the origins of procurement of the Polaris program which of course was the, the nuclear missile program. He edited the Naval Review from 1972 and then he published his memoirs of his wartime service called An Affair of Chances, A Submariner's Odyssey, 1939-1944, to which he published in 1991. And then did a biography of Earl Mountbatten entitled Earl Mountbatten, The Princely Sailor and he published that in 1996. So a well-accomplished author. Again, from his historical background, he was a member of the Royal Company of Archers, which I believe is the Queen's bodyguard in Scotland. Indeed, yeah. It is. He was one of those from 1969 till 2003. Okay. He also was a member of the Royal Institute of Navigation and the Nautical Institute, the Honourable Company of Master Mariners and the Royal Yacht Squadron. Additionally, just because he didn't have anything else to do, he was also a senior trustee of the Imperial War Museum. Excellent. It really is. McGough passed away on the 12th of August 2007, aged 93. What a man. Absolute legend. And just to almost briefly summarise all of that into one summation, what we have here is someone who achieved the rank of Admiral and lost the sight in one eye. Now, it's rare that I make Nelson comparisons, but let's just say he's in excellent company. Yes. And he has well earned it, I would say, because he was also unafraid of pursuing the adventurous route as well. And another trait he shared with Nelson, you might say. Indeed. What a man. Made his whole life in the Navy and then went on to study it and talk about it afterwards. Absolutely superb. I bet he was brilliant at dinner. Yeah, I always feel I would love to chat to any of these escapers, but I would put McGough very high up on my list of those that I'd love to sit down and have a drink with because he sounds absolutely fantastic and a brilliant escape. And I love all three efforts that he made. Each one was unique and distinct in their own right. And but underlyingly ballsy. Yes, yes, exactly. He was gutsy to the last, to say the least, and an absolutely brilliant escape story. And fantastic pre- and post-escape career. So, a life well lived. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.